Hey, welcome. So I want to begin this episode by talking about the pandemic. I know you've had enough of this topic and believe me, I have too. But I just want you for a moment to reflect on the week or so before Canada went into lockdown. How did you feel? Were you tired of the grind? Or did you ever wonder what it was all for? Did you feel that something just wasn't right? Now I remember going to work a day or two before kind of like the first lockdown here and I was thinking just how much I needed a vacation. Well, I got one and a long one, only it didn't turn out quite like I planned. No matter who you are, where you live or what you do, COVID-19 is having a real impact on your life. Small businesses are temporarily closing up shop. Hotels and restaurants can no longer accept guests. In terms of cases, today we hit a grim milestone. More than a thousand people have now tested positive in Canada. That all Canadians must act now to take all precautions and practice social distancing. And so one year later, it's been a year. And after being flooded with so much news and information, I think it's safe to say that we can all agree on one thing. The pandemic has laid bare our financial and environmental and socioeconomic situations. And as we're looking forward to the end of it all, I realize that we've been forced to examine how our society functions, who it's serving, and the future of humanity. And so conversations about how we're treating our seniors, racial inequality, food and water, housing, these are all becoming more mainstream. And in the noise of the last year, you might have started to hear a phrase being thrown around, the Great Reset. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This Do you think this, uh, uh, this is the opening of the great economic reset that uh, conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev has been uh, talking about and others have suggested is at hand, this uh, upending of the world order as we know it, using the pandemic as a springboard? I mean, it's And from a, a quick maybe... skim of the interwebs, you can kind of deduce that this great reset is a collective name uh, for more environmentally friendly and equitable economic policies. And, you know, it's no mystery why these ideas started to gain traction during this time. But I'll give you a little bit more details uh, on this a little bit later in the episode. So if there is a coordinated push for this great reset, my question is, what would that mean for our monetary system? This is the same system that many credit the imbalance of the world to, but also the same system that kept many Canadians, including myself, financially afloat during the pandemic. How, if at all, would it change? Welcome to Summer Between. I'm your host, Vladimir Matic, and I'm so happy that you're here. This episode, we'll be looking at cryptocurrency, what its future holds, and how the story is unfolding right now. To help me out with these topics, I'd like to welcome the first ever guest of the podcast. He's a self-made Bitcoin investor, enthusiast, and generally smart guy who's been demystifying money, cryptocurrency, and the monetary system on his Instagram and YouTube. So my name is Jericho Judson. Excited to be the inaugural guest. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jericho. Um, to begin, I kind of wanted to talk to you about the Great Reset. I think this kind of leads into cryptocurrency nicely and kind of the future of money. Um, I wanted to get your take on the topic. To me, um, the Great Reset is this collective name for a series of policies uh, that are attempting to change the future, to build a better and brighter future, if you will. And it seems that this topic has kind of taken off during the pandemic. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so um, 
you know, and actually maybe if I could just add a little asterisk onto this before I dive into it, most things in life are not necessarily like black or white. They're kind of in the middle, right? They're somewhere in between they're in the gray. Um, and so there's a couple, I can kind of provide a couple of different layers to this and I can start from kind of the mainstream, you know, maybe where everybody would understand, but I can also work my way up into like a little bit of a, like a semi conspiratorial because I have, you know, there's going to be the obvious points that we can, we can clarify. And then there's going to be some that are a little subjective and we don't necessarily know what's going on behind the scenes or at the higher levels of government or, or um, financial institutions. And so um, what I would say right away, as far as like kind of the mainstream side of the reset is that we're obviously in a COVID pandemic and a lockdown here. Um, so we're viewing this as a health crisis, but it is simultaneously an economic and a monetary crisis as well, because countries around the globe are having to shut down their economies. They're having to essentially artificially inflate the GDP and just pump, pump a bunch of money into the system to try to keep it from collapsing while we go into these lockdowns. And so we've had, you know, we're Canadian. We've had our own prime minister, Justin Trudeau, um, basically say that this is an opportunity for a reset. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. If you were to Google the Great Reset, the most prevalent material would be videos from the World Economic Forum. As we work to recover, will define our generation. Oh, is the time to think what history would say about this crisis. 2020 has been challenging on a lot of levels. As e but there is no vaccine for the planet. Nature needs a bailout. The World Economic Forum is an international not-for-profit group funded by engineer Klaus Schwab. With the help of Prince Charles, they first announced some policies under the name The Great Reset. And these policies being advocated for are coming under both praise and scrutiny. And yes, this is prime breeding ground for conspiracy theories. Of course, the pandemic is featured as a catalyst. And thanks in big part to the pandemic, Canada's national debt has just skyrocketed in the past year. This is due to stimulus policies that gave money to regular people to survive. And this was all done with a spend now, worry about it later attitude, which our government was very transparent about. And while there is something to be said about printing and doling out money to keep everything in balance, Christian Freeland, Canada's Minister of Finance, has come under fire by critics. They're pointing out that there's no real solution to how to fund this record spending besides accruing more debt. And the ways that she's running the country's finances are also being called worrisome for future Canadians. Christian Freeland, by the way, sits on the board of the World Economic Forum. And so, Jericho, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on the timing of all of this. Um, I think it was Sir, Sir Winston Churchill has a quote about, like, never waste a good crisis, right? Like, this is an opportunity to pass legislation and kind of to change and restructure our society. And we have the kind of the excuse of the coronavirus, because, you know, hypothetically, let's say the banking system was already in trouble. And I can easily point to the 2008 financial collapse as an indicator to say that it was already built on a, a foundation of sand, if you will. Um, and now that we're coming into a health crisis, this is an opportunity for a potentially weak or kind of um, uh, not very well built structure monetary system. This is an opportunity for the powers that be to essentially wipe it out or to say, oh, that system's not working. And it wasn't necessarily anyone's fault. You know, it was the coronavirus. And so they can kind of point this finger to say it wasn't bad money management. It wasn't bad economic policy. You know, it wasn't us. It was it was the, the virus. Right. And I think that's very convenient. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that's true. I think that this has kind of been a long time coming. Um, and sorry to go straight into a ramble with it. But uh, the, the problem with the current monetary system is that it's not really backed by anything. 
So we've been playing essentially an experiment. We're going to call it fiat money. Yes. Yeah, so Fiat money is like money or currency, and it doesn't have like an intrinsic value. Uh, it only has value because the issuing government has declared that it does. That system, at least if you kind of look at America, for example, and they're a good example because they're the global reserve currency of the entire world. Um, they've only been playing this fiat monetary game for like 50 years. Um, they exited the gold standard in 1971. And so, I mean, that's like in the context of human history or money, that's really not a long period of time. And so... You know, you mentioned you and I and our, our parents were born into the system. And so it seems very kind of like obvious and just like, why wouldn't it work kind of thing? But it's definitely an experiment. Um, and in my opinion, it's coming to an end. It's an experiment that didn't work. And so this is the reset that's going to come in and, and essentially replace it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like money is just baked into our existence. We use it for everything. And I mean, this is generally speaking, the average person, including myself, like we'll see those numbers in their bank account. But we don't really think about what's happening behind the scenes. And I think if you try and do your own reading on how it all works, the biggest thing you'll find out, it's just that it's getting more complex. And now, thanks to the pandemic and on a big scale, I find conversations about the back end um, kind of happening more and more between regular people. But uh, Jericho, I wanted to ask you, how would you like this great reset to play out? And I, I guess maybe what are some of the outcomes that you foresee? Yeah, and it's definitely tricky because it, you know, this there's a lot of moving parts. So if you change one piece in the equation, it can have a ripple effect down the road. And so, like for example, I know debt forgiveness is something that's being discussed. Like you know, student debt is something that's coming up that um, a lot of my peers and friends would agree with because at face value, who doesn't want their student debt to be erased, right? Um, but in the long term, you know, if we're going to talk about 10 years, 20 years or into next generations, just because it's convenient for you and I or that we're feeling the pressure of debt, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right way to proceed forward. That's going to, you know, net the, the greatest like outcome in the future. Right. Um, so specifically, like, I mean, I'm obviously on the Bitcoin bandwagon. I think that we need a unit of exchange that's internationally recognized um, and can't be printed artificially. And so unfortunately, you know, we're in this big global economy. Um, we have this international commerce between all of these different nations. There isn't necessarily even one economic superpower that necessarily exists anymore. Like it used to be a dominant United States market, um, but that's no longer the case. I think a lot of other countries and developing markets have kind of, you know, all boats have risen up to a similar level. Um, and that's relative. I mean, there's definitely still nations that are, that are behind, but um, it's not necessarily one clear winner anymore. And so I think getting some type of universal um, commodity or asset, if you will, whether that's gold or whether that's Bitcoin, but something that we can actually be basing the foundational principles of our economy off of, I think is going to be a lot more valuable than just essentially handing it off to independent policymakers and acting like they're going to be able to kind of solve the problems and and steer the boat of the, of the market. It's supposed to be a free market, um, and I don't necessarily think that human intervention is going to help that. So, but Wait a minute. Let's rewind a little bit. What is Bitcoin anyways? Bitcoin is a decentralized digital currency created in 2009 by pseudonymous programmer Satoshi Nakamoto. The way Bitcoin came onto the scene was via a series of cyberpunks um, essentially playing with different forms of cryptocurrency on the internet. Since it's decentralized, it's not run by any one entity and as such is under no governmental control. And because the currency is digital, Nakamoto had to solve the problem of where it's stored. So he created a technology called the blockchain. 
It's an encrypted decentralized ledger where the record of ownership of Bitcoin is stored across network computers, millions of them. And this entire ledger is available to the public, meaning anyone can see where Bitcoin is at all times. The record can't be changed and it's almost impossible to hack, although it's not completely immune from manipulation. Governments definitely, they can't ban Bitcoin in the sense that they can't stop it. Like it is something that exists. It exists on the internet. It is a decentralized protocol. Um, there's no way that they can turn it off. Uh, what they could do though, is they could say, you know, anybody that transacts in Bitcoin or various cryptocurrencies and is caught will receive like five years in jail. I mean, they could do that and that would obviously suck. Um, I definitely don't expect anything anywhere near as extreme. Um, they might say something to the effect of, you know, hey, this is really taking over. Anybody that has Bitcoin has to surrender, you know, 50% of their, their uh, asset immediately. Um, and, you know, same thing, here are the various penalties otherwise. And then they, that's essentially a government's way of, you know, regulating and controlling. And essentially, for lack of a better term, if the system does reset and Bitcoin is the winner, I mean, that could be a government's method of essentially trying to scoop up the new currency and kind of maintain their power and influence into the new economy. Um, mm -hmm. But that's just spitballing. Uh, I definitely do think countries are going to ban it. That's for a fact. It doesn't mean that Canada is going to do it. It doesn't mean America is going to do it. I think India made a statement not too long ago that they were going to do it. Um, and I mean, that's fine. Like from my perspective, you know, if the United States of America banned Bitcoin, it would be directly in like China's best interest to promote and utilize Bitcoin. Like if, if America wants to place the bet that this is not going to work or that we're not going to allow our citizens to do it, any countries that place the bet that, that it is going to work and then it ends up working, they're going to come out on top and as winners. So this is kind of a shaky tightrope that governments are walking because in one sense it threatens their system but in another sense since it's catching on and you know like elon musk is in bitcoin right so you best believe like if they try to ban it at this point there are powerful and rich people that have it in their best interest to try to lobby against the government to keep it you know from being regulated or, or to keep it open if you will right 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 um jericho can you speak a little bit uh, about the amount of bitcoin that exists like there's only 21 million Bitcoin, right? They're not all available yet, but are slowly being unlocked into the system. Um, the reason that there, there needs to be a finite amount is that that creates a, an inherent amount of, um, oh, I'm blanking on the term here, like um, it creates value in and of itself because all of a sudden it's a scarce asset. So if there's only so much of something, like let's look at land, for example, a lot of people will say that real, real estate is a great investment and it's because you know, they're not making any more land, right? Like if, if property exists or if land space can be bought, it's a good investment because as more people come into the system, less land is going to be available for our needs. And so that's one of the, you know, a base kind of principle just as to like why things being scarce inherently have value. Gold would have this principle as well, right? There's, there's only so much gold available. And so if you have a good measurable percentage of it, you're naturally, it's going to accrue wealth as time goes on and more people try to accumulate it also. Um, the catch though, is that some people think that like, yes, there is a finite amount, but as it comes into the system, Bitcoin is still being mined or unlocked, if you will. And so it's not necessarily like there's no more Bitcoin for you and I, because there's actually new Bitcoin coming into the ecosystem every 10 minutes, every 10 minutes, a certain amount of Bitcoin is being unlocked. And the way that the protocol is actually written is that every, I think it's every three 
three and a half years, um, the reward that you get every 10 minutes is cut in half. And so like when Bitcoin first started, every 10 minutes, there was 50 Bitcoin being unlocked. And then it went to only 25 Bitcoin. And I think now we're down to six. Um, and so there's only six Bitcoin coming into the system every 10 minutes. Soon enough, it'll be three one and a half, and we're going to keep following. So essentially, this is going to take a long time for all of the all of the Bitcoin to come into the ecosystem. It's still it's still fluctuating in while we speak. There, the way that you get Bitcoin for like you and I would be to just buy it from somebody that has it. But the way that Bitcoin actually comes into existence is it's for lack of a better term mined. And so what that means is that there's essentially a complex series of computer calculations that need to be solved. Um, this can only be done by high performance um, like CPUs, and those CPUs require a good amount of energy. Um, and so essentially, as Bitcoin ages, it requires more and more energy to remain competitive if you want to be the individual that actually, quote unquote, mines or unlocks the Bitcoin. And so... The fact that people are willing to spend the the time and energy and electricity necessary to compute the mathematical equations to receive the Bitcoin is kind of inherently giving it value because people are having to spend energy to extract the Bitcoin. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. So digital currency, there's only 21 million and you kind of have to like unlock it to expend some computing power. Uh, but what about for the average person? How do we plebs get some Bitcoin? So the way that most um, people are going to do this is via exchanges and exchanges are just synonyms for banks. Um, they're essentially just websites or companies that have been set up. Um, a couple of the big name players are Coinbase. Uh, they're an American exchange. Uh, Kraken is pretty big and popular. Um, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in particular is really popular in Asian regions as well. So there's a lot of Asian exchanges. Here in Canada, and my personal, the exchange that I use is called um, ShakePay. And they're pretty good. Again, Canada isn't necessarily the best nation right now from a regulatory standpoint. So we are having some hiccups here and there. But these will essentially allow you to make deposits, purchase various cryptocurrencies, um, and then cash out as well. So in the event that you did want to, if you made some profits off of Bitcoin, you wanted to cash out, these guys will send you a uh a check or a direct deposit to your account. Um, they'll take a small transactional fee. It varies the percentage based off of the exchange. Um, and then you will pay a tax on it. And I will be the first to admit, I'm not super well versed in the tax codes because I have no intentions of cashing out. Um, but I do know that it would be similar to like a capital gains tax, or it would be somewhere in that like high 20s, 30% range. So you'll, you'll take a hit. So you got to find an exchange. Um, that would be the average way to do it. You could definitely meet up with people too. There are various websites and fortunately I'm going to blank on some of them right now, but they're like, they're essentially marketplaces. So like if you wanted to transact good and services, maybe you got an old bike or something, um, you could, instead of throwing it up on eBay, you could throw it up on some type of like cryptocurrency marketplace and just get paid in Bitcoin. So if you want to kind of like skip the exchange route, that's a method that you could do. Um, there are meetups with people that if you want to buy Bitcoin at a little bit of a premium, I'll just sell you some of mine, you know, like if anybody wants to pay a little extra for Bitcoin, like, yeah, they can have a little bit of mine, right? And then I'll just take the money and, and buy more later. And so, but for the most, for most people and like the most mainstream way, it's just to sign up for one of these exchanges. Um, they're semi sketchy though, just in the sense that this is a new in industry and some exchanges could be as simple as 
five friends in their basement just programming a, a, an exchange, right? Like this isn't necessarily a reputable business. Some of them are, um, like Coinbase and Kraken, like I said, they are working directly with governments and financial institutions. But so just be careful um, and make sure you do your research. Like I don't want to promote that anybody puts their money anywhere that they don't feel comfortable. Um, but yeah, step one is to register for an exchange. It's going to ask you to verify your identity, which usually consists of providing a piece of ID. Um, and then within a couple of days or a couple of hours, uh, you should be able to make a deposit, buy some Bitcoin. Right. Okay. So it seems pretty um, pretty easy to get started in this. Just uh, basically there's an app for that. But I wanted to ask you how you got started in this and what drew you to um, to cryptocurrency and to, to kind of expand your own knowledge about this topic. So I got started kind of, well, at a younger age, a lot of the reasons that I have some of my monetary beliefs is that my dad is a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. And he brought me up kind of teaching me about the banking sector um, early on. And so I remember being like, like 12 years old and watching documentaries with my dad about the fractional, um, like monetary system, the fractional reserve banking system. And like, for anybody that's not familiar with this, the easiest explanation is to go back to the past when um, the kind of modern day banking system was first getting established. Essentially, this was back in a time that we were still functioning off of gold. Uh, let's say you had some gold and I was a bank. You know, it's not necessarily convenient for you to be transporting and carrying all of your gold all the time. And so you're going to safely deposit it inside my bank vault. And so assuming that I have a couple different clients similar to yourself, I'm going to accumulate a certain amount of gold. And I might even decide that it's profitable for me to make loans based off of the gold that I have. And so I'm taking in this gold. I'm giving you back some type of paper note or receipt to basically say that this can be exchanged for gold. Um, and then I'm making out loans to other individuals um, based off of the gold that's in my vault, right? And so it would make sense that I couldn't necessarily loan out more gold than I had. Um, but these bankers essentially decided that they could get away with this because hypothetically speaking from an economic theory standpoint, no situation exists that all of my clients would actually come and withdraw all their gold simultaneously. So I've got this big pile or vault full of gold. I can probably lo loan out maybe twice as much money um, or, or notes or um, bills or receipts, if you will then I have gold actually sitting in the vault. And I can kind of do this scam under the confidence that I'm probably never really going to have, I'm never going to get caught without enough gold. Um, and so this kind of births the, the fractional reserve banking system, but they kind of took the ball and ran with it. Like they didn't just decide to loan out twice as much. They essentially decide to loan out 9x as, as much as they actually had. And so they only have ever had to maintain about 10% of the reserves in actual, you know, in the vaults or in the assets at the bank. And they've been able to loan out the remaining nine times. Um, and this is essentially the modern day banking system functioning. So when you go into a bank and you try to take out a loan, or, or even, you know, maybe this is a more practical example, if you were to get a mortgage, you know, maybe a responsible person would put like, 10%, 15%, 20% down if you could get it. Um, and then the bank is essentially going to come up with the other 80% practically out of thin air. Um, it's just based off of the fact that you're contributing the necessary foundation and they're just going to artificially create the remaining bit. And then in the event that you can't pay your mortgage or you foreclose, the bank's going to seize that asset like they owned it, but they basically just, this money came out of nowhere. Like it was your money that they based their bet on. And so to me that right away, like at a young age and kind of learning some of this stuff, like that just put a bad taste in my mouth. I was like, well, that doesn't seem to make any sense. 
and this is actually my my hope for the future is I think our society has a lot going on right now and a lot of problems, but I actually believe that the all of these problems are like this tree or this web that's breaking off from foundational problems. And one of the foundational problems is a corrupt monetary system. And so I think that good money would actually, you know, like these are grandiose statements, but like they could help with racism. They could help with climate change. Like they could really solve some problems in our society that I don't think most people appreciate. And so optimistically, one of the reasons I'm so excited about Bitcoin is that like, I hope in the future, a group of individuals right now that were able to think proactively that maybe had some beliefs that could see that, you know, the foundation wasn't necessarily as strong as it was and that there was opportunity to build a better future. Some of those individuals that got in early are incredibly wealthy and are going to be even more wealthy. And so coming into this new economy, I'm hoping that a few of those individuals are like philanthropists, like are, are, you know, ethical people that are hopefully going to try to use some of their newly created wealth to actually make a, a positive impact on the globe. And so, yeah, this is like one of the few aspects of our society I'm like really optimistic about because this is like, like I said earlier, it's, it's a life raft that we might actually be able to ride out into an into a new era. So All right, so to recap a little bit, um, number one, there's a finite amount of Bitcoin and it takes some serious time and energy to mine. So this kind of gives it value. It's encrypted, so private information is much safer than with a traditional bank and it's decentralized. This exempts it from most forms of government control. And it's looking like the trajectory of cryptocurrency is deliberately splitting from that of the current monetary system. Oh, essentially what you're doing is you're placing a bet against the current infrastructure, the current monetary system, the fact that we're living in a bubble to some kind. And if you feel if that resonates with you, and if you can feel a little bit of instability in the system, this is a life raft out of the system. And so there is no reason to come back at a later date. So if you're somebody that's just trying to make a quick buck, um, there are a lot of other assets and investments that I would recommend that can do very, very well um, that are not Bitcoin, because the entire concept of Bitcoin is that you're taking kind of for lack of a better term, this fake government monopoly money, and you're converting it into what you believe to be a more sound version of money. Right. Okay. Um, and I wanted to ask about the price of Bitcoin. It's been kind of making headlines in the past few weeks. I think the price is over $50,000 US now. Uh, so that seems pretty high. And it's kind of seeming like it's, uh, it's kind of past the point of getting into it for normal people. Do you think that the current price is uh, like an intimidation factor for people uh, wanting to get into it and are, is kind of preventing them from getting into it? Um, I wouldn't look at that at all because, again, price is not necessarily important. We're still early on into the game here. And so I would view Bitcoin not as investing, but I'd rather call it saving. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to protect your hard-earned energy. And so same as Bitcoin is a, a basically translation of energy into money, you or I as individuals take our energy and we convert it into money as well. And if the governments, you know, I'm not even saying they're doing this maliciously. If the governments are just semi-incompetent or making mistakes along the way, or if things like pandemics come in and mess up the whole system, um, it's best to just be trying to think about how you can protect some of your hard-earned work for your, for your future and for your family. And so 
I just right now, Bitcoin seems like one of the best investments. If you can buy gold, if you can buy land, if you can have you know, a bunch of assets or equipment or things that, you know, provide value to your life, like try to get your hands on as many of those things. But yeah, Bitcoin is not a get rich quick scheme, even though that might be a byproduct of it. um, That shouldn't be how you're necessarily looking at it if you're trying to invest. And Jericho, finally, any other pieces of advice for people looking to invest in cryptocurrency? Uh, My one tip, and this is just, you know, take it or leave it. um, Only Bitcoin. Do like there's there's so many other cryptocurrencies right now, and I'm not saying that they're not going to go up in value. I am not saying that they're not going to be successful. But my personal belief of of the society that we live in, the the protocol and the way that Bitcoin is designed is that is going to be the winner. That is the one that's going to be worth our time and our energy. Um, I would advise people throw a little bit of money at it from time to time when it's convenient to them. Don't look at the price. If you got 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks a month, just throw it in and keep doing this for a while. And then in, you know, five years, 10 years, 30 years, and I get most people want it faster than that. But if you look back, I think it might be one of the best investments you ever made, honestly. Jericho, I want to thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me today and taking the time out of your life. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. um, And it's been an honor to have you as the first guest of Summer Between. Yeah, man. So great to be on here. Thanks for the invite. I really appreciate it. And thank you, dear listener, for spending some time with us today. This was our very first episode. I hope you found it insightful. My name is Vladimir Matic. I'm your host. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at Summer Between Podcast. It's all one word, lowercase. Or even better, shoot us an email. Hello at summerbetween.ca. Until next time.